Thanks, guys. A long passage, but well read, uh, and one that we're going to skim over a couple of times while we're here. Um, if you've got your outlines, now's the time to have them out. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open at Mark chapter 5, and we're going to work our way through that. But first, I need to set something up. What I've just put up on the screen is a world death counter. Unfortunately, there's a Udi ad there as well. It sort of ruins the mood. This is going to count for us the approximate number of people in the world who will die during this talk. Now, if this is your first time at the CU, I know that's a bit confronting. Uh, we don't normally do this. Um, but I've got an uphill battle this afternoon. Now, Because in the next 25 minutes or so, I need to convince you who live in one of the most prosperous and well-off places in the world that your experience of life is the exception rather than the norm. I don't know whether you've been paying attention uh, on the internet, but apparently Perth was ranked the sixth most livable city in the world. And in the top ten, six were in Australia and New Zealand. And that's because of, and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, their widespread availability of goods and services, low personal risk and effective infrastructure. Uh, Perth received a perfect score for healthcare, uh, which is awesome if you live here. But it also means that when it comes to assessing the real state of the world, we are at a considerable disadvantage, hence the death counter. One of the central propositions that the Bible makes is that the world is under the shadow of death. Uh, In a particular section in the book of Isaiah, its death is described as a veil that's kind of cast over all of creation, kind of darkened and blackened out. And it tells us that death is not a natural part of life, it's an enemy that none of us can escape. Now, that attitude might seem unusual to your Western ears, but if I was to go and start this same talk in most parts of Africa or Asia, they wouldn't even blink. In fact, if they were paying me, they'd ask for their money back, because for them... Death is an ever-present reality and a threat that looms around every corner. One cut is all it'll take. An accidental scrape against a piece of wood or a piece of metal gets infected, rots out, you die. Nobody is immune and nobody is safe. And that is their lived experience. In fact, that is the lived experience of most people in the developing world. What I want to suggest to you is that it's actually true of us as well. We're insulated from that reality by a very high standard of living Uh, And the fact, of course, that we put our old people in nursing homes out of sight and out of mind. But in 100 years' time, 100% of the people in this room will be dead. And the sad news, I don't want to burst your bubble here, but I'm going to anyway, you're already dying. Uh, You guys think you're indestructible young things. I remember when I was like you in the prime of my life. But the sad news is that once you hit 18, it's just downhill from here, right? The rate at which you're growing is surpassed by the rate at which you're decaying. I still remember, I was in my early 20s. um, I was much more active uh, in in my youth. I would jump off roofs and all sorts of things. And I remember the first time I jumped off the roof of my house and landed and just felt a slight twinge in my back. And I thought to myself, okay, that's it. That's done. There's no going back from this. Um, And it was a moment, actually, for me where I realised things aren't going to continue persisting in a really positive way. Uh, What was it telling me? 
Well, it's telling me that beneath my idyllic life, and it tells you that beneath your idyllic life in Perth, you have an enemy that is coming for you. It's already claimed 400 people. And it's an enemy that you are powerless to do anything about. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why the Christian union exists. And so the purpose of today uh, is to probe a little bit deeper into that proposition of the Bible and then see what it is that Jesus has to offer us in our need. And the way that we're going to do that, you can see this on your outlines there, is to answer three questions that Mark records for us at the beginning of today's passage. Now, it wasn't read out uh, by the girls just before, so I've got it here up on the screen for you. Now, this is the calming of the storm, and it happens immediately before chapter 5 begins. And I'm just going to read it out to you, and I want you to listen for the questions that we hear. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping in a cushion, Uh, sleeping on a cushion, not in one. Um, The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So the boat is about to sink. Remember, these are seasoned fishermen. They're not exaggerating here. They know that this is the end. Verse 39, Jesus gets up. He rebukes the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, we're not going to spend much time in this story, but what makes it significant for us this morning is the questions that it asks. Did you see what ones they were? There were three. Uh, first of all, don't you care if we drown? Second, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then finally, who is this? And the reason we want to pay attention to these questions is because in the Gospel of Mark, as with any other work of testimony or persuasion, when a question is asked by the author, it becomes the question of you, the reader. And so while we could answer all three of these questions from this story alone, the questions that Mark records for us project forward into his narrative, into the stories that follow as well. And so we're going to spend our time in chapter 5 this morning answering these questions. And we're going to see three incidents in Jesus' ministry that happen that answer these questions. And if we track them through as Mark intended, it will open our eyes to the problem of death. And it will also open our eyes to death's reversal in the person of Jesus. And what my hope is, is that you will see that Christianity offers you, you who live under the shadow of death, hope in the face of an inevitable enemy. So three questions. Let's begin with the first question. And we'll put that one back up there. The first question is this. Don't you care that we are perishing? Now, you might have noticed that I've changed the wording slightly. Uh, In uh, the NIV, in our translation we had up on the screen, it says, don't you care that we are drowning? I think the question is actually better translated as perishing. Mark actually uses the word for drowning a little bit later on when he talks about the pigs in verse 13 of chapter 5. And it's a different word. And the reason I think this is important, important enough to mention, is because when Mark records the disciples saying to Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? He's indicating to us that there is more going on for the disciples than just the threat of drowning. What he's saying is they, like the rest of us, have the spectre of death hanging over them. And we know this because of the three people that we meet in chapter 5. 
Who are they? Well, first there's the demon-possessed man. Now, the storm is quelled, and where does the boat land? Well, you see there in chapter, two, chapter 5, verse 2, that it lands among the tombs. And a man with an impure spirit comes out of those tombs to meet Jesus, and the picture is terrifying. It's a picture of death. You can sort of imagine it, you know, the kind of the, the mist rising and the tombs sort of slowly made out amongst the mist. And then this wild man charges out of it at Jesus. And what we find out from this passage in, in verse 3 and then in verse 5, if you're looking along, is that this man isn't just passing through. He lives there. He lives in the graveyard. And what he does is, verse 5, he wanders among the tombs day and night in torment, crying out and cutting himself. So here is a man possessed by demons living in the realm of the dead. That's the first person. Second person is the dying girl. Uh, When we get to verse 21, Jesus now returns to the other side of the lake and he's confronted by a synagogue leader called Jairus. And he tells Jesus that his daughter is dying. And we find out at the end of the passage that she's 12 years old. And though back then it wouldn't have been uncommon, this is devastating because there is nothing her father can do to save her. That's the second person. Third person we meet is the bleeding woman. On the way to heal the little girl, we're introduced to a woman there in verse 25 that has been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, And we're told something really interesting in the next verse, in verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Suffered under doctors. She'd spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So here is a woman who is beyond the help of healthcare. She too is slowly dying. One, two, three. And in each case, the condition of the person that Jesus meets is obvious. They are the living dead. And together, what they do is they paint a picture for us that describes reality As far as God is concerned, whether you're in the first century Israel or 21st century Australia, what God says to us is that our world is held in the grip of death. Now, you might ask at this point, well, why is that the case? Because I thought if if that is true, then, then, then the Christian God is a loving God and a powerful God. And the fact that this death counter continues to count and tick over seems to be constant ticking proof that either God doesn't care or he does, but he's powerless to deal with death. And I want to reply and I want to say that neither of those things are true because there's a third factor that factors into this. God is loving. uh, God is powerful. But the Bible tells us elsewhere why death dominates our world. And we see it in Romans chapter 5. And I'll put this one up on the screen for you. Here's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. At that point, the sentence cuts off and Paul goes on a different tack. But the thing that we need to collect here is that first phrase, that one man that this verse is talking about is the man Adam, the first man, the man that God made. And God made him. He placed him in paradise in the Garden of Eden. And he placed him there to work the ground and enjoy fellowship with him, God, the source of all life. But what Adam did is he sinned. He disobeyed God. And so because God is not only loving and powerful, but he's also just, he punished Adam. He'd already told him that if he disobeyed, he would surely die. And on the day that he disobeyed, he did. He entered a spiritual death before God and the fellowship with the one who gave life was broken. And that's what happened. 
Through Adam's sin, death enters the world. But notice the second half of the verse there, because his actions become a pattern for every single one of us. It says there, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And I want to say that that's why death is not natural. It's not the dignified end to a wonderful life lived. It's a punishment. It's an indication that you and I have done something to disrupt the world that the loving and powerful God has made. The reason 100% of the people in this room will die is because 100% of the people in this room have sinned against the infinite and eternal and holy God of the universe. And what God says to us in this passage is that you are perishing and the cause is not physical, it's spiritual. Even now, even in sunny and COVID-free Perth, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are sinking in the boat. And like the disciples, you should be crying out in terror, don't you care that we are perishing? Now, you may have noticed um, that I haven't answered that question yet. But as we read today's passage, I think the answer is obvious. Don't you care, God? Of course, God cares. And we know that because he sent somebody to deal with the problem. He sent Jesus. And that leads us to our second question. Who is this? Mark gives us two answers, I think, in chapter 5. Who is Jesus? Well, first of all, he is a man that is stronger than demons. It's surprising, but run with me here. We'll get there in the end. Uh, When we meet the demon-possessed man at the beginning of the chapter, two things are emphasised. One of them we've already seen. He lives in the tombs, the place of the dead. But the other thing that we're told, uh, the thing that's emphasised, is his strength. So if you look there in verse 3, you'll see that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, as we read this, it becomes pretty obvious that his strength is of demonic origin. And this is significant for us because earlier in Mark's account in chapter 3, Jesus has described Satan, the prince of demons, as the strong man. And if anyone was to plunder the strong man and take what was his, then he would need to first bind the strong man. And this is precisely what happens at the beginning of chapter 5. As soon as Jesus sets foot on dry ground, the demon-possessed man runs at him. And you're expecting this kind of grand face-off. I don't know whether you ever kind of watch horror movies and like the demon kind of has like snake things and the other guy's got a sword and that sort of stuff. And you're kind of expecting some sort of kind of magical or spiritual kind of battle uh, between Jesus and the demon for the life of this man that's in the demon's power. But there's no battle. No great wrestle of powers. Uh, The demon, or more accurately, the demons, because we find out a little bit later that there are many. The the demons throw in the towel before the fight even begins. They beg for mercy because they know who is stronger. And so Jesus, he casts them into the pigs. And the man who lived in the tombs, in the place of the dead, is restored to his right mind. See that in verse 15. And he leaves the place of the dead and he returns home. Now, great story, but you might ask at this point, what the heck do demons have to do with death? Aren't we a bit off topic here, Matt? And the thing that we need to understand is that the realm of the dead 
is the dominion of demons. Through their influence, by their power, they oppress people, they keep them enslaved to sin, and therefore they keep them trapped in death. If you kind of imagine death as a jail, all of humanity is trapped inside it. Uh, Their sin has led them there. God's punishment sits on them. But there's another person in that equation, and that person is Satan and his demons, and they're the ones that hold the keys to that jail. And until they're defeated, until the strong man is bound, rescue from death is not possible. And so what we're seeing here in this confrontation is clear proof that Jesus is stronger than demons. And that's good news because it means that he is able to rescue us from their power and deliver us from death. So who is Jesus? Stronger than demons. That's the first thing. The second thing, Jesus is a man who is stronger than death. And now we're a bit more on topic, I think, right? Uh, This is the second half of chapter 5. What do we see? Two women, one dying, the other dead. And in both cases, Jesus, through the work of his miraculous power, stops the inevitable and reverses the flow of death. In the case of the bleeding woman, all she needed to do was touch his cloak. And we see there in verse 29 that immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In the case of the dead girl, all Jesus needed to do was take her by the hand and say, little girl, I say to you, get up. And then we see in verse 42... Immediately, the girl stood up. Note that word immediately in both cases. Instant reversal because of Jesus. Now, it's important to understand at this point that these reversals were not permanent uh, because both of these women would eventually die, uh, this time for good. Like, they're not still trucking around 2,000 years later. But, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is only handy so long as he's, he, him and his cloak are around to kind of be touched What Jesus is doing here in these two incidents and what Mark is recording for us is a demonstration by Jesus that he is stronger than death. And it's a sign and a pointer to the greater work that God sent him to do. Because later on in Mark's gospel, as the story continues to unfold and we see the plight of humanity, what does Jesus do? He himself will die and enter the grave, crucified on a cross. And God would not leave him there, but raise him up again to resurrection life, to never die again. And in dying and in rising, Jesus destroys the power of death. And now he offers everyone everywhere the hope of eternal life, life beyond the grave. And so when we step back and we look at chapter five as a whole and we ask the question, who is this? Well, we see Jesus, a man stronger than death, stronger than demons definitively declaring that he can fix our problem and rescue us from under the shadow of death. And once we get that and we understand who Jesus is, well, we're then in a position to ask and answer our third question, the one that Jesus himself asks, the one that he asks not just of the disciples but of each and every one of us. And that question is this, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I don't know about you, but on the surface, that sounds like a bit of a jerk question from Jesus, don't you think? Because it's not really unreasonable to be afraid of death. I don't know whether you've ever had a near-death experience. I've had a few. Some of them have been trivial. Some of them have been a bit more serious. And the one that stands out in my mind is when I was a young 20-something and I stupidly cut across three lanes of traffic to make a turn-off in time. And I had no idea what was in my blind spot in any one of those lanes. I just jerked the wheel because I needed to make it. And in God's kindness, the space I needed was the space that the car moved into. But far out, it was stupid. 
It was stupid, stupid, stupid. And, and, and once I'd made the turn off and I'd kind of made it out, I, if the timing had been off, I would have died. And I, some, that, that, that does something to you. It really shook me up. It really scared me. I just couldn't believe that I'd done it and risked that. Now, the disciples, the disciples were career fishermen. And they would have endured some serious storms in their time. They would have had some great stories around the campfire. And if they said they were drowning, then they knew it. And so for Jesus to just be sleeping in the stern of the boat and then wake up and, you know, oh, hey, guys, why are you still so afraid? It seems just a little bit oblivious, don't you think? And I think it would be if it was any other man. But as we've seen, he's a man stronger than demons, stronger than death. And once we know that, I think his question makes a lot more sense. Because his question is driven by the expectation that knowing who he is, is significant enough to change our response to the most confronting and terrible of human realities. And in asking the question, what he does for us and for the disciples is he provides us with the categories to respond to the reality of death. He gives us two. That's three. Let's just go with two. We either respond in fear or we respond in faith. And these two things, fear and faith, are regarded by Mark throughout his gospel as polar opposites. You're either the helpless victim in the thrall of powers beyond your ability to resist, and because you are helpless, you fear. Or you respond in faith, not because you are mightier than your enemy, that is to be self-deceived. A dead person cannot raise themselves from the dead. No, you respond in faith because you have a champion, a saviour, somebody who is stronger than your enemies, somebody called Jesus. And what Jesus is doing in asking this question is he's calling the disciples and he's calling us to sober reflection about where we stand in a world that is under the shadow of death. Because that counter keeps counting. And one day we will be the next number. And so we have a choice between fear or faith. Now, most people, most people choose fear. I know that might sound surprising to you, but it's true. Now, people either live in perpetual fear of their death or if you live in a place like Perth, well, then you ignore the counter. You just kind of minimise it or you kind of conveniently just change slides and just slip it away. But if you do that, then what happens is the fear just kind of builds up and it hits you all at once right at the end. And I think it's the reason why in every single war movie you ever see, you see the bravest of men who charge the beaches, blubbering like little boys, holding their guts in, crying for their mother and saying that they don't want to die. It's actually one of the most accurate and profound things that the movies capture about war. Because whatever the bravado you have or whatever even the genuine inner peace you have as you face your death, maybe for you in the safety of a lecture theatre, at the point of death, all of that just goes out the window. Because death is terrifying. And even more so when you take seriously the words of Hebrews that man is destined to die once and then face judgment. There is more death after physical death and God is there ready to hold you account, to account for sin. So most people, most people choose fear and the tragedy is that most of them don't know it. But there is another option. You can choose faith. Now for the bleeding woman in verse 34, it was her faith that healed her. Uh, for Jairus, it's made even more explicit. If you look down there at verse 36, you'll see Jesus say to him, don't be afraid. Just believe. And in both cases, it was their faith in Jesus, the one who was stronger than the powers of death, that led to death's reversal. 
let me head back to this counter and let me stop it. Two thousand five hundred and sixty-eight. It's an estimate. It's fairly accurate, is my understanding. And I want to say that that number is tragic. I don't want this to be a cheap gimmick. I want us to remember that these represent people. And it's tragic not just because they're people, but because it represents the horrible state of our world. And it's not just tragic because of that, but because ultimately it represents the amount of people who have now confronted their maker and have finally realised the true horror of death. And here's the thing. If the statistics are even marginally accurate, about 10% of that number, it's about 257 people, were Christians. People who died not with guilt or with fear, but with faith in Jesus, the one who has the power to raise the dead and grant eternal life. And the point of Mark chapter 5 is this. Our world is under the shadow of death, but in Jesus there is hope of resurrection and life beyond the grave. And so Jesus asks us, he asks each one of us, which will you choose, fear or faith? Now, that's a confronting question. It's a question that needs to be considered, especially if this is your first time being introduced to the Christian faith. Uh, There may be less triggers uh, in in future CU public meetings, Uh, which is why in your handouts I've included a third option. Uh, There's fear, there's faith, and then there's find out. Um, This is the third option that kind of leads to one of those other two options. Uh, This is a copy of Mark Uncover. Some of you would have seen this floating around the CU. Uh, Its tagline is See for Yourself. And what we want to do is we want to invite you to sit down with somebody from the CU and read it. This is the whole of Mark's Gospel, not just chapter 5. And and we want you to find out. We want you to see for yourself who Jesus is, whether or not it's legit, whether the things that I've just said is just absolute rubbish or whether it's actually got some merit. And so what I want to encourage you to do is ask a friend. Ask the friend who, who, who brought you to read it with you. If you don't have a friend, we'll give you a friend. We're pretty generous in the CU. Everyone always needs friends. Now, Hopefully what you've seen today is that you've seen enough that it is obvious that this is at least worth your investigation and your time. And so please, what I want to encourage you to do as I finish the talk is make the decision now to do something about your death by working out where you stand with Jesus.